This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Zach. You know, Zach just there illustrated to us something that I think we all need to learn, um, using our Bibles to pray, to give us words to pray. Zach, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, This morning, our fearless leader, Ronnie Garcia, is on vacation, so... You got me. Here we go. I'm Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And we're going to be today looking at Acts chapter 14. Um, So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or your bulletins there. It's printed for you. Um, One of the things that I get the opportunity to do a lot as a pastor is meet with a lot of men for uh, for lunch or coffee or or, um, different things. And one of the things that happens in those conversations is I, I end up getting a glimpse into a lot of marriages. And um, and it's a real privilege, and, but, but a couple, several times, you know, you, you have this conversation, and there's something that happens that's a little unnerving, and that's when the, the, the man is talking about his wife, and he's a little bit too pragmatic about his relationship with her. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I think marriage is a good thing, yeah, oh, yeah, my wife is good for my kids, yeah, you know, I think marriage is important, she's, she's great. You know, it's just a little bit too pragmatic. It's a little bit too rote. And the reason it's unnerving is because what you want is you want him to be be like, oh, my wife, she is so precious to me. What a a wonderful woman that I love. And you see see the difference? It's, It's a little bit unnerving when we're a little too pragmatic about our wives. Now, I know that there's some self-protection mechanism. Anyways, whatever. You know what I'm getting at. Well, the problem is, is that um, sometimes our faith looks a little bit like that, where it's just a little bit too pragmatic. It's something we look at, we, something we assent to, right? Yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but it doesn't actually become who we are. It doesn't actually shape how we live. It's not something that we're enraptured with. I know that in my own life, um, for example, I can see this in my self-righteousness, right? I know, at least intellectually, that my righteous, any righteousness I have is given to me by Christ, and yet, when in my car and when I'm alone, my, my, in my mind, I am just cuttingly judgmental and self-righteous. What is going on? My faith is something that I look at, but it's not something that actually shapes me. I look at my faith, I don't live by it. Now, um, in our passage today, what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul truly seeing his faith, the gospel, as a lens by which he sees his life. And it shapes everything about the way he acts. And he's going to teach us something about living by faith and what what that will look like. Not just looking at our faith, but living by it. Today we're in Acts chapter 14, and Acts 14 kind of can... It contains the majority of Paul's first missionary journey, right? He took three missionary journeys. So this one is primarily happening in what is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, right? His first missionary journey. Now, last week, Ronnie preached on Acts chapter 13. And if you'll remember, they, the, the church leaders in, in the city of Antioch are sending out Paul and Barnabas to, on this missionary journey. And at the end of chapter 14, after our passage today, they actually return home. And when they return home, they report to the church there, and they say this really interesting thing. They say, the Lord has opened the door of faith 
to the Gentiles. The Lord has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, when we read our passage today, that's not going to seem like what's happening. And you'll see it in a minute. You're going to say, wait, what? The door of faith is opening? No way. <laughs> it's it it's going to surprise you. Um, but I'm still going to use that as kind of my controlling uh, metaphor or concept, the door of faith. And so my two points are going to be opening the door, opening the door of faith, and then the other side of the door. What's on the other side of the door of faith once you've gone through it? So uh, let's go ahead and turn to our text. If you're willing and able, would you please um, stand with me out of reverence to God's word? We're going to read Acts chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 8 and read through verse 23. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now in Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, when they had preached the gospel in that city. And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, into Iconium, into Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's good word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. Please be seated. Okay, opening the door, opening the door. You have to pay really close attention when you read the New Testament um, because there's always a purpose to everything, right? There's nothing that's um, just frivolous or pointless, and repetition really, really matters when you're reading the New Testament. A month ago, Ronnie preached on Acts chapter 3 in which the apostle Peter miraculously heals a lame man, okay? And today, the apostle Paul miraculously heals a lame man, okay? 
Um, it's almost the exact same story. What is happening is the gospel is going out through Peter and Paul, and this miracle affirms the power of God, the power of the gospel at work through them. But here's the difference. Paul, or sorry, Peter heals a Jewish man in Jerusalem. But Paul heals a Gentile man in Lystra. And this is really important because with the, the, the author of the book of Acts, the, is, uh, his name is Luke, the same guy that wrote Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke. What he's doing is he's saying that in Jesus Christ, God is in the process of redefining who the people of God are. Okay? Even in, I mean, Paul even recognizes this. He says in verse 16 that in past generations, God elect, that he is God. God allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. What he's saying is that the people of God used to be Israel and only Israel. And in fact, if you wanted to become part of the people of God, what did you have to do? Well, you basically had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to obey the dietary laws. You had to sacrifice. At the, you had to do all the things that were the identity markers of what it meant to be a Jew. You had to take those on and do them. But what does this man have, this Gentile man have in Lystra? Well, look, does he have any of the identity markers? Well, no, he doesn't. And in fact, in verse 19, it says that Paul looks at him and he sees that what he has is not identity markers of the Jewish faith. No, he has faith. He has faith, and boom, a miracle, he is healed. You see, what, what's happening and what, what the, the, the author of Acts is trying to say is that the only necessary identity marker for the people of God is faith. And what the miracle is saying is that in Jesus, in the gospel, God is making even non-Jewish people his people. God is opening the door. He is opening the door to faith to all all the nations, all the peoples, anyone who will turn to him and believe in the gospel. Now, at this point, the story takes a sharp turn downhill. Um, the Lystrans, of course, they see the miracles of Paul and Barnabas, and they think, this is Zeus and Hermes. It has to be, right? So they bring out their priests. They bring out some cattle. They're going to make a sacrifice to these gods who can do these miracles. And, and this is when Paul gets really surprising, and when we really start to see part of his character come out in a really um, surprising way. This is the question we need to ask is, if God is opening the door of faith to all kinds of people, what does it look like for us to participate? Who are we supposed to be so that God will use us as he opens the door of faith to people of all, all the nations, all, uh, all kinds of people? Well, you know, Paul and Barnabas, of course, they, of course, they desperately try to stop them. Stop. What are you doing? You know, we are not gods. We are not Zeus or Hermes. That's not us. But it's really important. Their attitude is not, stop, you dummies. What are you doing? Like, give me a break. Educate yourself. Get it together. Figure it out. What's wrong with you? Well, no. In fact, they don't condescend to them in the least. And this is really important. They... It, they don't say, get on my level. They actually adopt this posture of camaraderie. And what does Paul says? He says, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. What he say? He's not belittling them in any way. He's saying, hey, we're, we're the same. 
We're the same kind of person. We're, we're both just human beings. We're just in this with you. There's a sense of camaraderie, this sense of like shared identity. Right? Even as these guys are trying to offer sacrifices, then Paul and Barnabas, don't, they don't lose sight of their dignity as human beings, their, their value. In and out, like, even though they're, they're, just, they're total pagans, and yet they say, we are just like you. Right? It's incredibly dignifying, respectful. That's Paul's first posture, is this posture of respect, of, of, of camaraderie. And what does Paul do next? Well, he begins to share the gospel with them. He says, we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that is in them. He says, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, <laughs> excuse me, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's interesting. The, you know, the Lystrans didn't have Bibles. They had never even heard of the Bible. You know, they didn't know the story of Noah and the Ark, David and Goliath, or Jonah and the whale. They didn't know any of that. In fact, they didn't even know the name of Jesus. They didn't even have the concept of human rights. They didn't even have science. They didn't even have weekends. And you guys know, like, all of those things come out of Christianity. Like, their, their world was so completely divorced from a Christian worldview that it, is, like, it would have been incomprehensible to us today that live in the Western culture where our whole world is shaped by Christianity. It would be completely incomprehensible, and yet Paul recognizes that they are not without the testimony of God's grace. God has still been gracious to them. He has still been good to them, and he, and he steps into those places where he sees God's grace in their lives, and he uses that as a bridge to the gospel. Right? He talks about the creation, like they, they enjoy creation. They, they, in fact, enjoy their lives, right? Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And he's saying, listen, God's grace, even to you, even to you who have no concept of the truths of the gospel, yet still God has been gracious to you. It's actually immensely dignifying and respectful. He doesn't put... Paul, is, his posture is not like, hey, guys, get on my level. Get up here. Like, figure out where I'm at at this, you know, higher enlightened state, and then, you can, and then you can finally get it. No, he goes to them and he says, listen, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to speak truths truth to you that you can understand and, sh- and share the good news with you um, from your experiences. I care enough about you, Paul says, to, to connect the gospel to your concerns, your experiences, You see, the places where we see God's grace at work in non-Christians is often the place where we can most directly connect the gospel to their lives. Do you know your coworkers or your neighbors or even your family members well enough to see the places where God's grace is present in them? You know, maybe it's something that's really beautiful about them, something that's really true and good, or maybe it's even in some of the darker parts of who they are. It's really interesting. Paul actually finds God's grace in the Lystrans in their idolatry. It's really interesting. Do you see where he says, he says, um, do you turn from these vain things? Paul isn't shaming them. He's not saying... You know, he's not shaming them. He's saying, listen, you are looking to Zeus and Hermes to satisfy this longing in your heart. 
but they can't because they're not real. But here's the thing. There, are, there is a real God. Right? You're, you're, you're off base, but not totally off base. There is a real God. And He can satisfy the longings of your hearts. Okay? Do you see what He's doing there? And do you know what's really interesting? The author of Acts, in, in contrast, in, in verse 9, we're going to meet uh, the Jews from Iconium. And in contrast to them, he actually seems to really think that the Lystrans are a whole lot closer to faith than the, Jew, the Jews from Iconium. You know what the Lystrans say? They say that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. What? Do you mean that the Lystrans actually had a concept for, a God, for God becoming a man? You see, they're actually a whole lot closer to faith. And in fact, scholars actually think that Timothy, so Timothy is the, is the guy who Paul wrote the books of First and Second Timothy to, Timothy was from Lystra, right? His mom was one of the ones who was a whole lot closer to faith than anyone would have expected. It's really, really interesting, right? The Lystrans were a whole lot closer than, was, than, um, than it seems at first glance. You see, Paul, Paul was living out of his faith. He was actually, the way that he understood his faith caused him to take a certain posture towards others, even others that were so different from him. Now, let me, um, let me just give us a couple points of application here, um, ways that we can kind of bring this home to ourselves. One, um, what this means is that God is more likely to open the door of faith to, uh, around your dinner table than he is on a street corner or even on a mission trip. This is why. This is why. Do you have friends that are non-Christians? Because you will struggle to apply the gospel to them, to like actual people that you know and love, and like their concerns, their experiences. You will struggle if, to do that if you don't know them. If you, if you don't have non-Christian friends, you will struggle to actually speak the gospel to them. It doesn't like just on the the, the you know street corner with a microphone. That is a, not going to work as well as knowing people and, and speaking truth to them and to their experiences. The second point is that Christ, you know, we Christians, we just love, we love pat, simple answers, right? We like it all to be clean. But the truth is, is that we probably need to spend more time asking questions than we do giving some simplistic answers, how are we going to know the longings of people's hearts if we do not ask them? How will we know the longings of people's hearts that only Jesus can satisfy if we do not dig in and know them, know their concerns? You know, one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century is a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, um, when people would ask for meetings with him, he'd often take them on walks and when he would go on walks with them, let's say he had an hour, he would spend 55 minutes asking them questions. And then the last five minutes, 
he would get to maybe, you know, some, his thoughts kind of thing. 55 minutes in questions, five minutes in thoughts, his thoughts. You see, there's a deep longing to know others. There's a deep respect. There's a deep um, a dignity to that. Um, the means by which we communicate the gospel should be as varied as the people, the cultures, the past, the stories of those to which whom we are sharing the good news. We don't water down the gospel in any way, shape, or form, and Paul would never have watered down the gospel in the least, and yet there was flexibility in how he proclaimed it, and he proclaimed it in such a way that gave dignity and, uh, and showed his love for people that to whom he was proclaiming it. Something like, we got to learn this. We're just so, we, we just struggle with this so much. The Lord opened the door of faith there in Lystra, and he did it powerfully, through the power of the gospel and that, that healing, that, that, that uh, miraculous healing, but he also did it through the character of his servant, Paul, right? And the love that he showed towards the Lystrans, towards these people. Okay, that was our first point, opening the door. Our second is the other side of the door. What happens after the door's been opened and we've been ushered through um, to, into the family of God? What's it like on the other side? I have an immense amount of respect for people who are in sales because one summer in college, I had a sales job where I sold Cutco knives, and I was terrible at it. And, um, but one of the things that you learn in sales is there's a ton of lingo. And one of the, probably the most important lingo is the close, like as in closing the deal, right? Are you a closer? And of course, um, it's, it's just everywhere. It's, you, know, you, you go to training to learn how to close, and it, it's, it's a, it becomes this identity marker and, and every, whatever. Anyways, what it's going to feel like in this next section is that I'm really not closing, closing the deal, okay? Um, and, of course, the gospel's not a product, and I'm not a salesman, but um, it's going to feel like I'm really missing an opportunity here, maybe. But bear with me. Um, what happens next in our story is, this, is a dramatic and unexpected turn. Paul's life has been on a roller coaster this day. And Jews from Iconium appear out of nowhere. They've traveled over 100 miles. Like, that's a 100-mile walk. And they've come with one purpose and one purpose only, to kill Paul. And they stone him. And um, stoning is that means that they throw rocks at him till he's dead. It is not a pretty sight. And it's not, I mean, this is not a David and Goliath situation where it's just one rock and then all over. No, it is a, like a long, slow bludgeoning to death. It is horrific. Um, you know, for Paul, the door to faith opened in Acts chapter 9. And here in Acts chapter 14, we learn what was on the other side of the door for him. Suffering. Stoning. And it turns out that suffering is often the penalty for gospel reception. Suffering is often the penalty for walking through the door of faith. And Paul makes a particular point to teach the Lystrans this. Um, he, Paul's not killed. I, I, I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't know how he didn't get killed, but everyone thought he was, and he wasn't, and he got up, and the next day he walked 60 miles to another town. 
to continue preaching the gospel. I don't, I, I don't know what happened. But I do know that he wasn't killed, and he returned to Lystra, almost like a turning of the cheek moment, right? He returns to Lystra, and what does he do? What does he tell them? Look at verse 22. He says this really interesting thing. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, we've lived in the West uh, for many, many years without persecution for our faith of any kind, and we've kind of fallen asleep to the idea that Christ, when he calls us to be like him, calls us to be like him in everything, including suffering. And Paul is clear. Paul knows this. He knows this by the marks on his own body, that suffering must be on the forefront of what, how we understand what it means to live a Christian life, a faithful Christian life. You know, a lot of us think that when we, we actually think that the door of faith is actually a door into an easy life, and it is absolutely not. And, you know, I suspect that maybe the days are drawing towards a close in which we can afford to not reckon with the fact that Christ might call us to exposure or even suffering for his sake. In our lifetime, or maybe the lifetime of our children, maybe even more horrifying, Christians all over the world know that suffering is often on the other side of faith. But here's the good news. Suffering is not the only thing on the other side of the door to faith. The other side is also family. You know what Paul does as he goes back to all these places? He establishes churches. Look in verse 22 again. Right? He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. He's encouraging them. And then in 23... And when they had appointed elders, with fasting and praying, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Paul is planting churches. He's creating churches. He's creating support systems for those who are suffering, for those um, who have gone through the door to faith. We say this all the time, that there's no point, part of the Christian life that is lived alone. No part of the Christian life that is lived alone. There's no point, part where it's just me and Jesus on a mountaintop no, we always live the, Christ, the, the, the Christian life with our brothers and sisters. And if we're called to suffer, we're called to suffer together. The early church had everything in common. If you lose your job, we'll help you out. If you need to go to the hospital, we'll get you there. That is what the church was meant to be. And of course, that's what, I mean, that is what we want here at Trinity. That's what we want our small groups to be about, to be about living life together, to be about even suffering together. And you know what's true about the world today is that our relationships have been commodified. As we, as we like, our relationships are all plastered all over the internet for public consumption, and we're just trying to get likes and become something, you know, it's, it's all commodified. And what happens when relationships are commodified, when they become a product that we buy and sell, what happens? Well, what happens when your toaster breaks? You throw it out and you buy a new one. Well, what happens when relationships break? If they're just a product, we throw it out and we get new ones. But what if we're called to suffer together? Like, what if we as Christians learn to truly bear one another's burdens? Those are relationships that you don't throw out at a moment's notice. Those are relationships that can bear the weight of a whole lot of pain. And you know what? Christians that have suffered, it can still say that God is good. 
Like, there's incredible weight to that testimony. There's incredible weight and truth that is offered in that testimony. And that's exactly what was the case with the Apostle Paul. He had suffered, he had suffered immensely, and yet he could still say that God was good. And of course, his ministry reflects um, the truths of those statements. Where did Paul learn all this? Where did Paul learn to love people like this, to give them dignity? Where did he learn to suffer like this? In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells that church, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's Paul's ethic. His, Paul's, his ethic is, I do what Jesus does. I do what Jesus does. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 14. Paul had, lived to learn, to, uh, had learned to live by faith. His faith was not just something he looked at, it was, something, it was the lens by which he saw all of his life. You see, what Paul was doing wasn't an accident, it was something that he could move past if he could just get a little bit more skilled in the things that he said, or maybe he could figure out how to you know, speak to the right people, or he could stay in his middle class bubble, or whatever. No, this was the life that Paul knew that he was called to live. And how did he know that? Because it reflected the life that Christ lived. You don't move beyond what Christ did. We never move. We never achieve something higher. We never let God, Christ doesn't call us to do anything different from what he did. Um, Cecilia, a couple weeks ago, my wife came home from the women's Bible study. And Margarita Lutz was teaching there. And she used this illustration that I thought was really powerful. Um, she grew up in the Midwest, and I've spent several years in the Midwest, and it snows a lot, and the snow can get pretty deep. And when you're a kid, the snow can get so deep that you can't walk through it. And what parents will do for their kids, if they're trying to get to the car or something, is that they will walk through the snow. And then their child will walk stepping in the same footprints as their parents. Like their parents pack down the snow a little bit, they bear the brunt of the deep snow, and then their children are able to walk behind them. This is a really powerful illustration of what Christ calls us to do. Christ doesn't stand at the car and say, hey, get over here, come on, come to me. If you get over here, you can, you know, we can hang out. No, Christ takes the steps. He does the hard thing. He sets the, um, the stage. He goes before us and he calls us, not after what he has done, not before what he has done. He says, you come behind me. Like what Christ calls us to do is always in response to what he has already done. And what did Christ do? He came to earth. He condescended to us. He became like us. He, he felt our pain and our sorrow. He knew our needs, felt and unfelt. He knew it. And he, and he spoke directly to us. Or he, he met us where we are. Right? That's, that's all that Paul is doing with the Lystrans. Is he's meeting them where they are. And what was the result of that? Well, he, he suffered and he died for you and I. He was willing to do that. He was willing to do that for us, for his brothers. And Paul calls us to, be, to do the same. 
in this passage. This is the means by which Paul, or sorry, the Lord opens the door of faith. And he calls us, just as he called Paul, to imitate him. And as we do that, Christ will be the lens through which we see our own lives and we'll begin, we'll learn to live by faith. Actually do that something, right? Y'all know that. Never. Only a profound, compelling, cosmic love affair will break us out of the self-centeredness, the status quo spirituality that we live. And I want you to think about this, you guys, and this is where I'll end. The church, it started in Jerusalem. And here we are, you and me, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on a small island in the middle of the Caribbean in 2020. And it didn't just jump from Jerusalem to Puerto Rico. I mean, it was like this fire of burning love, just burning across the whole world, right? Time and space until it got here. And we would just receive that. And how did that happen? Like, how did that happen? It's just a bunch of people. It's just a bunch of people who knew they absolutely did not deserve the favor of a holy God. But, but here they are. And they're so wonderfully confused by grace, right? That they just, they just wanted it for other people. And it, and it happened. It just totally happened. This average Joe saying, I was blind and miserable, but, but now I see. Let, let me tell you about this God who, who knows everything I've ever done. He knows like the worst parts of me, and he totally loves me. You've got to know the Savior. That's the grace that's at the center of multiplication. Who... People, when they're fasting and, and worshiping, they feel that. It's just bubbling over. Man, that's what I pray for Trinity. <laughs> what if what if Trinity bubbled over like that? Like it's not some course we're taking on evangelism. It's just people swimming in grace. And the world just wants it. And why wouldn't they? I pray that's the legacy we have here. Let me pray for us. Amen.